What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. Hang on. That's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. I'm William McGarrow. We have a really interesting topic today, which is Robert Hansen. He's called the Butcher Baker because he was a baker and he killed people. But first, Bill, you there's something that really caught your ear, and there's something that we want to talk about that maybe our listeners need to be aware of. What is that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there is a... Call it an Amber Alert. We're going to call it our alert here at Death Row Diaries. There is a missing girl. Her name is Kylie Rodney. She's been missing for 10 days now. She's 16 years old. She was driving a silver 2017 Honda CRD. Um, she is from Placerville County in uh, California. She's blonde hair, hazel eyes, five foot seven, about 115 to 120 pounds. Uh, look, we need all eyes on the roads looking for this girl. She's been missing for 10 days. The last time that anybody heard from her was at this campground where there was kind of little festive activities going on there. She got in her car. She texted her boyfriend at 10:30 p.m. 10 days ago, and no one has heard from her. So. Everyone that's listening, being laid back about this is not good enough. You need to have your eyes on the road. We always talk about being aware of the surroundings. We need all listeners to be aware of their surroundings, looking for Kylie. She is probably in grave danger. And I'll repeat that. She's in grave danger. And I ask that everyone look for her. And if you do, Matt's going to give you some of the details about how to find her. And Matt, we would appreciate that now. Yeah, this is in Placer County, up near Placerville in Tahoe County, California, Nevada state line. She is five foot seven, 118 pounds, like you said, blonde hair, hazel eyes. She has a tattoo on her ribs of the number 17. She has a nose ring and several other piercings, including a navel piercing, and that 2013 Honda CRV is license plate 8YUR. One two seven, and that that car also has a small ram's head sticker on the back window under the rear wiper blade so keep an eye out that was the last time that they heard from her was ten thirty at night of course that text could have been sent from her it could have been sent from someone that had access to her phone but uh yeah we're hoping to get some information. We don't really need your prayers. We need information. Yeah, if you, if, you, if, if you need information about this case, look it up online. Look her up. Her name is Kylie, K-I-E-L-I, Rodney, R-O-D-N-I. It'll show a description, it'll show a picture of her. And look, guys who kidnap children, because she's 60 years old, ladies and gentlemen, they change their appearance sometimes. They'll cut her hair, they'll dye their hair a different color. So if you don't see the, the, the Honda SRD, if something's different, but you feel that the situation may be appropriate, call the authorities. It's better to be wrong about a situation than to have missed her and she disappears again. So that's today's announcement. It's very important. And we're going to keep doing this uh, on our episodes of Death Row Diaries so we can help someone that's been abducted or someone that's missing. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get a resolution to this. So thank you for bringing that to our attention, Bill. Make sure and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. 
and check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash death or diaries, where you'll get access to content that's not otherwise available. And for that privilege, you can actually pay $5 a month or you can pay a dollar a month, which I, I think we're worth that. I really do. Uh, speaking of the social media pages, we have a few listener submitted questions. And if you have one, feel free to send them to us. So Caroline, one of our Patreon subscribers asked, Bill, have you ever met any cannibals? And if so, what were they like? Well, cannibals, huh? Well, um, we've covered Jeffrey Dahmer, obviously the human cannibal, the Milwaukee cannibal, as we used to call him, before someone buried him. Uh, so, yes, I have met a, what they call a cannibal, a guy by the name of Bill Suss, he's still here at the bro, he's known as the Lake Elsinore Killer, or the Riverside Killer, or he's also known as the Chili King, because he would enter into these contests, that we've talked about this before, and he would put human flesh in these chili recipes that he made. Um, what is he like? He's a creepy little guy, okay, um kind of an overweight guy, he's just a know-it-all, not really intrigued by the guy, he's always volunteering, he likes attention, so the experience I've had with these particular type of guys, they're not that much different from other serial killers, the majority of them come off creepy, they come off odd, little strange, the ones that are elite, Randy Kraft, Ted Bundy, those type of guys, they're a little bit different, they're more evolved, they're more sophisticated, but in terms of uh, cannibals, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head would be Bill Suss, and he's a creepy guy. He killed, I think, over 20 plus um, sex workers in the Lake Elsinore uh, area, and he basically took flesh off bone. He, it was, he had a really bad situation. He had a cellar where he would pick them apart. Um, very hard to really get close to a guy like that who is kind of basically an animal but um, yeah real creepy guy and that's basically I, the, the short answer about this guy creepy if you think of Pee Wee Herman that's the kind of guy I think of not in a funny sense but a creepy guy I don't think it's that much different from Liver King. I don't know if you know Liver King, but he's this social media phenomenon and he's this hyper masculine dork. He looks like a professional wrestler. He's all roided out or whatever. Is that he's really into eating raw animal organs, like big cow livers and things like that that are half the size of his body. And he uh, instructs people that this is how you build muscle. It's very creepy. Yeah, he's a moron. I mean, <laughs> anybody knows anything about working out or anything. No, he's just looking for attention. Look, he's just... Look, the word moron should bunch jump into your mind as soon as you hear a guy like that. But, yeah, he's just looking for probably more hits on YouTube or whatever social media following. That's, that's what he's doing. Yeah, but I feel like cannibals, when they share that information, they really want you to be impressed. And it's like, meh. <laughs> it's not much of an accomplishment. Yeah. Norm, Norm from Laverne in L.A. County wants to know, when you get out, where's the first place you want to eat? Would it be something new or would it be a place that you remember from uh, your younger years? Well, Norm, um, <laughs> uh, to be, being completely candid with you, I don't think of those things. and There's a very good reason for it. Matt and I have talked about because I've talked about the show a little bit, but in 2017, I was basically ordered release or retried. So I, that little light at the end of the tunnel opened up for me, and I started running towards it very fast. Um, I started imagining where I would go eat, uh, taking a hot shower without a timer, you know, just really enjoying the most basic things of human existence, of being a man free. And that didn't happen. The courts then reversed that decision. And now I'm going to be reset to a lesser sense and not getting out anytime soon. So I stopped thinking about those things. And, you know, I, I appreciate the question, but I, I don't know how to answer it because I don't think of it. If I start thinking of things like that, 
there's a very good possibility that you know it, it begins to affect you emotionally as well as mentally and that's something i don't want to do so with all due respect appreciate the question but um, i never think about eating or being out really um, it tends to to lead you down a path that is very difficult to deal with while you're in prison yeah and i'm not comparing my life to to what you have to deal with but in terms of the general philosophy you know a long time ago i stopped counting on deals you know entertainment have 60 seconds remaining entertainment business things where someone tells you this is definitely going to happen you're getting promised this and that and i don't get excited about anything until i cash a check it's a similar mindset right analysis and, and you can think of the nail right on the head yeah until i walk out that gate and matt pulls up and tells me in his creepy 1970 serial killer van i'm not going to say anything about where i want to go eat until i walk out that door <laughs> yeah well, we'll be back and we'll discuss robert hansen the butcher baker when we come back pretty good yeah so robert hansen Midwestern kid from Iowa. His whole thing, for those who aren't aware, is that he moved to Alaska, opened a bakery, and he began killing prostitutes, strippers, or or just maybe women that dabbled in prostitution out there in the Anchorage area. And then he would fly them in his little plane to a cabin that he had in a more remote area and allow them to kind of think they were escaping and then he would hunt them which i think means just shoot them in the back and he did this a lot before he was caught yeah robert christian hansen um born 1939, August 21st, I'm sorry, that's when he died, he died August 21st, 2014, he's known as the Butcher Baker, his killing spree, according to what he has given authorities, again, we are relying on him to tell us what he did, he killed between 1971 and 1983, um, he hunted with a Ruger Mini-14 and a knife, and... I think we should take a look at his childhood, don't you think, a little bit? Yeah, I didn't see anything here that is of the typical mold that we usually see, which is that he was abused, especially by a domineering mother or father who were alcoholics or drug addicts or anything like that. That's not to say it didn't happen, but I don't see anything like that. I know that he had a stutter, and he was a, a little guy with a stutter, and he got bullied a lot. But uh, I, I don't really see anything that would explain, nothing explains this behavior, but just any link here. Well, you're not going to find it. Um, you're right. He was small, shy. He did have a stutter. He had acne, which scarred his face. Um, and he, according to him, he had trouble as a young adolescent getting the attention of attractive girls in high school. Well, look, welcome to the world of every adolescent boy, unless you're Brad Pitt. You, you know, according to experts, he grew up hating them and then fantasizing about revenge. Even Brad Pitt may have had some trouble. That's just not... When you're 15 years old, I don't care who you are, it's really hard to get anything going with the ladies. Unless you're... There's one option, which is that you're kind of jacked when you're that age, but that just means you'll be obese like five years later. Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, so that he had trouble getting attention of attractive girls, <laughs> so did everybody. But what we see here, and I've talked about this so many times, it's that it's not so much what happened to them, because we can find fault in every kid's childhood and why they respond the way they do it. And that's the, the key right here, is how they respond. His response isn't to go in the weight room and work out or become a marathon runner and take all his anger out into becoming a successful businessman. He begins to, to do really bad things. Um, 
one of them is, it's very interesting here because he, you know, graduates from high school. He's, by all accounts, a normal person. But he, he does this crazy thing, which is to suddenly decide to burn down the Pocahontas County Board of Education's school bug garage. And he does so because he says that he was in a popular in high school. That makes no sense to me whatsoever, but it does make sense that he's wired differently, so he responds differently to any, what we would consider normal behavior by high school kids, which are to pick on other kids and to do, you know, to make fun of them, and attractive girls don't want to go out with this guy. So he is, this is, he's not a, young 15-year-old or 12-year-old when he does this, he is an adult already. He receives 20 months and where he is diagnosed with being a manic depressant. He has some form of schizophrenic episodes. It's noticed by one of the psychologists or psychiatrists that he has an infantile personality. Yeah, I mean, he's burning down houses and buildings where buses are at because they have a connection to his high school. This is a very good reason immediately why this guy should be looked upon differently. So what does he do? And let me back up a little bit, Matt. It wasn't like he was, you know, ostracized. Before he burned down this building, he had married a young woman. He was with her. He was with the woman. So it wasn't like he was so repulsive that people wouldn't even talk to him. He married a woman. But while he's doing his 20 months in, in jail, of course, she files for divorce and leaves him. So between this time, which is 1960 and around 1967, he, he gets arrested for a few petty thefts. You know, he's in and out of just for... Uh, five days here, six days here in jail. Um, he marries another woman in 1963. And he does uh, fly and go to Anchorage, Alaska, where he starts a life with her. A little prior to this, he tried to become an assistant for a, as a drill instructor for a police academy. That didn't work. He did join the uh, reserves that only lasts a year. So his guy's floating around. He finally decides to move his new family with his wife to Alaska. And they have two children. So by all accounts, this guy isn't so, he doesn't look like Quasimodo. This guy isn't the hunchback of Notre Dame. This guy's just wired differently. And we see immediately that he begins to evolve. And I mean evolve as a killer. So he begins to hunt, which he did as a kid, and he becomes a small celebrity in this town of Anchorage because of hunting records. He's hunting moose, he's hunting, you know, deer, and he's very good at it. So in 1971 is when we see a really big change, man, and maybe you want to touch on some of the things they did but involved a woman right away. So I'm looking at this, and... I'm, it's just a cursory timeline, but he's married, he has the kids, he opens a bakery, he's got this hunting hobby that he's successful at. And to me, it seems like, okay, he had this turbulent period and maybe he got over it. Maybe he got it together and he, he's going to move on. You know, a lot of people did weird things when they were young and, and they bettered themselves, but that doesn't appear to be what happened, right? Absolutely not. Yeah, this guy, he's planning this. This isn't something that um, just came about. There's very small indications that, you know, he did some things, and as you said, he probably outgrew them. But in 1971, from being a petty thief and a guy who lit a fire, here comes the jack-in-the-box. You know, you're winding it up, and all of a sudden he pops out. This is we got here. In 1971, he's arrested for abducting and attempting to rape a woman, a married woman. And then, really soon after that, he is arrested for raping a sex worker. 
And what he does is he pleads no contest. And part of the, the plea bargain is they drop the rape. And he's given five years in a, in a penitentiary, which this is where the system really fails his victims. Six months later, he is released on a work program detail, and he's out of prison. Yeah, and we've seen that in other cases from this era, just inexcusably light sentences for sexual violence. That was just a thing that happened in the 70s, apparently, along with sideburns. Yeah, and look, it's 1971 when this happens, but a very interesting thing happens there because we have to kind of almost look into the future, okay? We sort of have to here because as soon as he's released from jail, he understands something very important. And that is that he realizes something very important. That is that if you leave a witness, they will report you. He does his six months in 1971. His first murder is 1972. 1972. And he starts this, it's not even slowly, just as he jumps right into it because this is something he's already been planning. Robert Hansen is an organized killer. He's an organized serial killer. That means he fantasizes, he lives in his mind, he plans out his his, uh, his targets, he follows, he stalks his prey, literally and mentally before he does this. And we have him just, and no one knows what's going on. He's a baker, he has a family, and the victims, they don't know what's going on for several, well, more than a decade later. So we have to kind of go back and look at what he does. You've mentioned before that he would pull up next to a sex worker or a person that he perceived to be a sex worker, and he would offer them money that he would get in the car, and then he would pull a gun on our knife, and he would abduct them and take them to his home where he would chain them, rape and torture them, and then fly them out into the wilderness. He had a, a, a small cabin in the wilderness that was that was only accessible by plane or by boat. He would fly them out there, and then he would release them with the whole plan of hunting them. This guy was playing, I guess that movie, The Most Dangerous Game, where you released your prey, and then you hunted them. He was bored with regular uh, animals, but it's, it's, it's more than that. This is a form of control. This is a serial killer who has found a different way to exercise torture, both psychologically as well as physically. He has the woman tied up. He's dominating physically. He's raping them. He's torturing them. That's the physical dominance. But when he releases them into the wilderness, where again, he is the hunter and they are the prey, he is hunting them psychologically as well because he's instilling fear into them. This guy, as a predator, is receiving gratification both sexually as well as psychologically. And it is about control, complete dominance over his victims. And Matt, this guy, it's incredible that they found some of these victims. And, you know, he only gave up a certain amount of them because there were so many. And, you know, we would have to flash forward to get to how they found all these victims that they belonged to him because he made a mistake. But his list is extensive. What do you think about people who trophy hunt? I'm not talking about people that hunt. I have friends, plenty of friends who hunt moose and caribou and things like that. I'm from Alaska, for God's sake. But when you get this guy, this businessman type of guy that's from the lower 48 and he wants to go on a safari to Africa and kill a rare black rhino, and you can explain it by means of this is about conservation and it was going to die anyway and all this stuff, but you do want to kill something beautiful. Is there an element of that in all these guys? Yeah, that's an interesting question you're bringing up because I do have some thoughts on that because I, too, at one point was a hunter. And my father taught me the same thing about hunting. But let's get into that when I call right back. So 
so as I was saying, uh, I do understand the concept of, you know, hunting and, you know, whether you're a guy or, or a woman, I mean, whatever, and you want to put your skills of tracking and you go into the Alaskan wilderness and you're really up against the elements. Um, and that's different. But when you have a guy from Hollywood, California, and he's a great businessman, he buys himself a 30-odd-6 model 710 bolt action, and he pays $50,000 to go to a park reserve where he's basically shooting goldfish in a barrel because he wants a mountain as well and brag to his friends that he is the great hunter. Somebody just slap the shit out of that guy. I mean, that, I mean come on. I mean, really. Uh, Conservation is one thing, but you're breeding animals so someone can just shoot them and kill them. I see no sport in that. I don't see any skill in that. you got a guy who basically points you and you're 13 feet away and say, okay, pull the trigger. If you want to do that, get a film and, 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 and like those arcade games and you shoot the, the, the big bad rhinoceros and, you know, they'll give you a stuffed animal. I, I just don't see... I've hunted and I probably would never do it again. If I needed to, 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 to that, I could do it. I would get a camera and I would shoot the, the animal with the camera and say, I got the picture. Hey, I got it. That's good enough for me. Again, because I've done it and I understand it, unless you're eating the animal because you need it, I don't believe there's a reason for us to go out and start shooting animals anymore. And the, the, the easy reason is we're, we're lo- our animals are becoming extinct. We're losing more and more wilderness, and I have a big issue with that. Um, so, yeah, guys who shoot animals in a barrel or fish in a barrel, they're not hunters, and I'm a little disgusted by even discussing those guys. Yeah, and he kind of fits that mold. He's respected in the community. When I heard that he owned a bakery, I'm like, I don't get it. This guy was baking artisan sourdough and making scones and selling them for $8 a piece. What's going on? No, 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 no. He was making donuts. And his dad was a baker, too. So he learned this. He moved to Alaska where up until fairly recently... You know, they're, they're going to go crazy for anything where anyone knows what they're doing. If you open an Italian restaurant or a Thai restaurant and you know what you're doing, it's going to be really popular there. And he was <laughs> he was popular with the police because he owned a donut shop. He was established in the community with the hunting <laughs> and all this stuff. And he kind of had a cover. But, Bill, you got to think about anchorage alaska in the 1970s this is the wild west you know you don't have to be a millionaire to own a plane and a cabin these planes today you can get a plane for a thousand dollars and fly around matanuska valley and he just had the perfect setup you know you have transient women coming in who are servicing guys that are in the military in even gold mining and petroleum, coal, all this stuff. And there's there's just a market for it. And, you know, these people are, are transient. I don't mean homeless, but coming and going, no one's keeping track of them. There's not even that much law enforcement. He's just, he's got the perfect situation here for what he wants to do. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's one of the things. He first started off with very young girls. So... Um, for those who are listening and for those who want look, the guy was a child molester, okay? So I'm going to bring it out and say what I'm thinking. The guy raped and killed a 16-year-old little girl, 17-year-old girls. That makes him a child molester. So in my book, although he's a serial killer and some people might find this guy interesting, they make movies about him, the guy was a piece of garbage, okay? He, he harmed children. You know, he had his first victim that we know of was a young lady by the name of Beth, and I'm going to screw up this last name, and all of you guys know that when I start saying last names, I really screw this up, but Beth Van Zulten, or Zentan, she was only 17 years old, and, you know, they found her in 1971 on, on uh, Christmas Day, they found her, and his list just explodes, and I'll, I'll name some of them, and give, uh, her age, you kind of get a, a picture of who these girls were, but his next one was Meg Emmerich, and she was 17. Then uh, Meg Phil, she was 22. There was a girl in 
and they used to call her uh, Buklatna or Buklatna Annie because they found her on Buklatna Road. Euclidna. Oh, shit. Well, see how bad I was? She was only 16. And Joanna Messina, Roxanne Eastland, Lisa uh, Fer- uh, Farrell, or Footrell, 41, Sherry Monroe, Andrea, uh, Andrea, Sue Luna, Robin Kingley. I mean, these, this is just a list that keeps going on. Ray Fry, uh, Paula uh, Goulin was basically his undoing. But there's, uh, there's also Cindy Paulson, uh, a girl named Malia Larson. Teresa Watson, Angela, it just goes on and on. This guy is suspected of killing 37 women, taking them into the wilderness and hunting them. He left them in shallow graves. He did unspeakable things to them. He would tie them up with chains uh, in his cellar. He had hideaway spots in his home where he put the bodies, uh, the girls while they were alive, and then shipped them out to his cabin in his little airplane. this guy was a, a really bad guy, and no one knew what he was doing. This is the crazy part. For a decade, this guy murdered, raped, tortured, and hunted women, and no one tied to him until this crazy day in 1983 where he offered a young lady by the name of Cindy Paulson. It was... a. Uh, She's only 17 years old, and he enticed her into his car by offering her $200 for her to perform a sexual act on him. When she got into his car, Matt, she pulls on a gun and basically orders her to get down and so no one can see her. He drives her to his house where he puts a chain collar around her neck and then rapes and tortures her. This is a child. This is a 17-year-old girl. And then this guy takes a freaking nap. And, and, you know, it's just like you think about this guy. He's so comfortable in his environment that he has a girl chained to him in the cellar of his house. And he takes a nap. When he wakes up, he decides, huh, it's another day in the woods for me. He packs her into his car and drives her to the airport because she's going to become his next victim. Well, she's already a victim. He's raped her. But now he's going to fly her to his cabin. He tells her. He actually tells her he's going to take her to his cabin. And when she hears this, luckily for this young woman, they're at the Morrill airfield, and he goes to start packing things into the cabin of his plane. And she sees an opportunity. She's in the backseat of his car. She has handcuffs that are tied to her. And she's able to get loose. She leaves the car. She runs to the car. She flags the car down. And lucky for her, a guy by the name of Robert Gount pulls over. He sees how she, she's very disheveled. She, she, her blouse is torn. She's barefooted. She's running. She's in a very bad state. Takes her in the car and he takes Cindy Paulson to an inn. And he drops her off and he makes a phone call to the local police department where he tells her what's going on. But when the police arrive, they realize she's taking a cab to the Big Timber Motel where they finally question her. And you would guess what this guy does, Robert Hansen, when they confront him with. There's a woman saying you've abducted her, you've raped her, and you were trying to take her somewhere. Guess what he tells the cops? He's got a story, right? Oh yeah, he's got a great story. It's like it's like a uh, uh, doc uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Same thing. He has a great story. He says, "Look, she's trying to extort me. I gave her a ride, and she wanted a certain amount of money, and if I didn't give it to her." She would then turn me to the police department. And of course, Robert Hansen has an alibi. His buddy, who she'd been taken out and put in prison, just like him, a guy by the name of John 
Hindling, Hindling gives an alibi that, no, 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 he was with me. He could have possibly done that. So the police let him go. And then that's when things start getting a little dicey. They bring in John Douglas. And who is John Douglas? He is an FBI profiler. He's very famous. He wrote the book Mindhunter. He's the FBI's number one guy. And he invented this whole profiling thing. And he comes up with a profile of who this guy is killing all these women because they're finding him in shallow graves in the wilderness. You know, they're, they're finding bodies. And they have him in here. He gives a pretty good indication. The guy's probably small. He probably has a stutter. I don't know how he came up with that, but uh, maybe that could be a little embellishment there. But he begins to profile him, and then they bring in the young lady who said that this guy did this to her. And they get a, a search warrant for his home. And they decide to go in there and they use her description of where he kept her to really search the house and they find a stash of rifles. They find uh, a, a loose board in the back of his, the headboard of his, of his bed and they pull out a map. And this map is an aerial map and it has 37 little X's next to it. So they really began to understand that something's going on here, that this guy may be something more than just the local baker. But if, uh, for, at first, of course, he denies everything. But they're setting me up. And then as they interrogate him more, he comes up with, well, they deserved it. He starts blaming the victims for what he's done. And they pressure him more, and then he begins to cop to, yeah, look, I, I, I may have killed this person. But, you know, she, she deserved it. She pulled a knife on me. And as time goes on this interview, he then starts really giving up that he's been killing women. And they ask him about that map where he is agreeing then if they as part of the plea bargain that he would then divulge where all the bodies are and what those excess mean. And remember, Matt, you and I have talked about this and I've told you that serial killers may cooperate with the authorities when it's to their benefit. But there's they only give up as much as they feel that won't harm them or won't expose them too much. And we have serial killers that talk to profilers. They give them all these stories. And these profilers take them at their word. Oh, okay, it must be, make sense. This guy's telling me it, so he's, he's being open. No. Serial killers only tell you what they, you already know. They may confirm something. But when it comes to real personal information that will really give you a look at who they are, or they're embarrassed by it, they won't give that up. And this is a perfect uh, case right here. You have 60 seconds remaining. Of the 37 exes that we know belong to young women that he murdered, he gives up only 17. The other ones, he refuses to divulge information about who they were, why he killed them, or anything about them. Because it's his secret, his secret at all. Let me call back. I'm sorry, I know you explained it, Bill. What is his mindset here? Why is he confessing to essentially half of his crimes and lying about the other ones? It doesn't make any sense to a normal person. Okay, so serial killers always, always, or only divulge what is convenient for them. He was in a jam. He, they knew, he knew he had them, or they had him. The, the bullets from his rifle matched some of the bullets that were in the victim. So he knew they had them. But what he kept to himself or for himself was information or trinkets that he kept. They're like souvenirs. When they went to his home, they found jewelry that belonged to some of the victims. And of course, the rifles matched. So it was undoubtedly him that killed them. But he had a list or he had X's next to 37 different spots around the area of his cabin in that area, which marked 37 bodies because he gave up 17 of them. He took them to the place they had matched the X's. The reason
reason he kept the other ones to himself because it wasn't convenient for him. He wanted to keep those for himself. He wanted to, for, it could have been because maybe the girl embarrassed him. He didn't want to bring authorities to that place because they would learn more about him because there was something possibly there. There could have been evidence there. So serial killers only give up what's convenient. If they're caught, they're caught. So they'll give up only enough that it satisfies their agenda, whatever that agenda might be. In this guy's agenda, in Robert uh, Hansen's agenda, keeping those other 27 girls, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, those other 20 girls or close to 20 girls, he did so for his own reasons. And those reasons are usually involved in something very personal to the serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do they all have this kind of dedication? I feel like this guy's whole life was he worked in a bakery. He had two kids. That was all just a uh, cover. He had no emotional attachment to any of this stuff this whatsoever. Call and or telephone number will be monitored and recorded. He had no emotional attachment to any of this stuff. And I feel like just he was ruminating constantly about the one thing that he wanted to do. But are they... He just has no other quality. He has no personality or anything. So are they all like this? Well, I don't think that he only lived for the kill. I believe that he had a dual life. He probably cared for his kids in some way, he cared about the woman he was with, cared about his bakery. This is an aspect of his life, and I don't want to simplify it so it looks like we're not really uh, feeling for the victims here, but it's like a person who is a dentist or a doctor or a podcaster or an actor and on the, on the weekends he rides a motorcycle it doesn't mean that he thinks about the motorcycle every single moment of the day he might but his acting career his dentistry whatever he's doing is important people are dentists they're fathers they're presidents of the glee club they're they do different things with serial killers it's very similar they're just wired differently so that he was a bakery probably cared about his bakery cared about his wife and kids but that kick inside of him that drive they had to satisfy like a guy who likes to ride his motorcycle on the weekends. It's not so trivial, but he's killing people. But in his mind, it's something he has to do. It's what he does. It's part of who he is. But so is being a baker. Their personalities have different uh, set of rooms. Some of them compartmentalize it. What, so a, what about the... On the killer. Have we ever discussed this this aspect? Because... What about the anxiety? You know, there have been times where I was hiding something in my life, very minimal. I remember one instance where it was sober October, and that's when you don't drink at all for the month of October. And I went out with some friends and wasn't planning to drink, and I, I got drunk and I came home, and I felt really guilty and paranoid that my girlfriend was going to find out. And... That's nothing. No one would have even cared. But how do you walk around with the burden of knowing what you've done and, and not even that, but the paranoia of getting caught and that everyone is going to realize what a disgusting monster you are? I, I don't even understand how you could function. Maybe it's because I have kind of, maybe I'm an, I'm an anxious person in general, but I just feel like that would drive you completely nuts to where you couldn't even function. Well, the, the good example is that you're a normal person. So you have, you have a conscience. With these guys, the drive to do this overwhelms the sense of getting caught. Because they don't want to get caught. Most of them don't. Some of them do. Nowadays, I believe that they've evolved and they don't want to get caught at all. They're hiding the bodies, et cetera, et cetera. But this guy, he wasn't paranoid. He was very careful what he did. He believed in his, in his method his method of operation, he believed in it. He would pick these girls up. No one really cared about sex workers in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, not that they go out of their way now and they care about them, but it's very difficult to hide it now. But what we're talking about is a guy who is basically picking up women that he perceives will not be missed. So if there's no record because these girls go and get in so many different people's cars, it's easy to, to have them disappear. 
He puts them in his, in his Piper plane. He flies them somewhere where no one's going to see him. And once he kills them and buries them or leaves them out into the wilderness and the elements, he believes he's done his job. He's covered his trail. So I don't believe it bothers him. And I know it, it certainly doesn't bother his conscience. Like, oh my God, I've murdered somebody. They're not thinking that. They're not wired to think that way. That's part of what they do. And they don't see anything wrong with it. Well, are they analyzing it? Are are they are they being are they having critical thoughts about why am I doing this? I mean, is he still trying to get back at the at the girls who didn't like him when he was in high school, or is he? Are they proud of themselves? Are they? Is it something that's on their mind, or is it like like you kind of said? Is it just totally compartmentalized? You know, it really depends on the killer. Each killer is different, and their form of dealing with it is different. I don't believe that these guys go around thinking, "Yeah, I'm going to get back to Susie for what you know this girl did in high school." I think part of the hatred is in that, maybe, but it's not the reason they kill. Different guys respond differently. Some guys become very successful, and then they mistreat women in a different way. They control them differently. This guy is a serial killer, so he's wired differently. He is killing because it's what he does. Whether he was popular in high school or he wasn't popular in high school really has nothing to do with why he kills. He'll tell you that's the reason because he's looking for an excuse. Everybody wants to be understood. Serial killers give you a reason to understand what they're doing, so it kind of lessens what they do. And we see that when he gets arrested. He begins to blame the victim for it. So that's a a mechanism. But it isn't why he kills. He kills because he's driven. That's who he is. As a human being, he's put on this earth, and they believe it's to do what they do. It's no different than a guy who loves to run or a guy who's really good at mathematics. It's what they're born to do. And these serial killers have a form of dealing with it which makes them believe that they're doing they're doing society a favor, taking out the trash, or whatever it may be. Each one is different, but he has a reason. What police, law enforcement don't understand is that usually serial killers give them a reason. And they're satisfied with it. Or they psychoanalyze it with the brain of a person who's normal. It doesn't work. The only way you get to know these guys, these people, these, these animals, is by being around them, watching them when no one knows that they're being watched. And put them in different situations and watch them respond. Once you understand their behavioral patterns, you're able to stabilize the kind of a system that I have, and you watch them. And you know exactly what they're going to do because of their personality traits. It's the same thing that a psychologist does with a normal person. He understands a response to certain situations. Well, there is no scale for serial killers. Well, until I came along and started studying them for the last 40 years. I understand how the, most of them act and why they respond a certain way. Hansen responded a certain way, like most of them do, is because of different little triggers in their life. But those triggers aren't the reason that they kill. Not at all. The reason they kill is just a symptom of their their mental problems because all of them are wired a certain way and all of them have serious mental problems where a person can kill and kill again and again and it doesn't satisfy anything. They feel empty, they feel without purpose until they kill and kill again. Each one of them is different. But if you know them and you get a chance to really speak to them, you can really start guessing what they're going to do next. And Hansen is not different. So this guy was very methodical. He was. He didn't do anything especially reckless in terms of something that could get him caught, which is why he was pretty successful at this. But they found that map with 37 X's on it in remote parts of Alaska. 
And I'm thinking that he had exactly 37 victims. What do you think? I believe with an organized killer like Hanson, I believe in where he kept that. He kept it in the headboard of his bed. It was very personal to him. That was his ultimate trophy. That map was his trophy. Because it was his trophy, we can logically expect that that are his kills. Hanson had 37 kills. But like a lot of serial killers, they sometimes allow law enforcement to find the victim because they want to be close. They want to see them find her. They want to see how they carry her away. They want to experience and relive everything. They allow them to be found. Hanson had 20 he didn't want no one to know about. He had them in the map, but he didn't want them to find them. He had a reason for that. I can't tell you what that reason is because I've never met him. But I can tell you it's a very good reason in his mind. And he's embarrassed about it or it's a special trophy for him. So he did have the thing that we see in, I would say, majority of these cases where he was, he wanted to be close to the case. And, you know, with his bakery donut business with the trophy hunting these are all things like military like cop guys are into and i feel like he probably discussed a lot of the stuff with them and enjoyed that right well he was a he was a drill instructor or tried to be for a while for the police academy so he has roots in military he was in the uh in, in the military for about a year before he could let him go but Yes, he has, he has some kind of aspiration, but I believe that's part of control. That's, that's part of that control personality that, you know, drill instructor, army guy, all these things are based in control, but it's, it's him trying to understand who he is. It's him filling his way to the darkness to find who he was. When he, was, when he arrived in Anchorage, Alaska, he knew exactly who he was already. He already knew exactly who he was exactly what he wanted to do. It didn't take him long to start killing up in next to his cabin. He had that all planned. And this guy, as you mentioned, didn't want to get caught. He was extremely organized in what he did. Had his home for a hideout. That's where he kept the women before he took them to his thing. He had a place where he stored them. He had chains and, and collars for their necks. He got them in his plane. He had a system. Got up his car, drove to the airfield, put him in the piper, flew him out to his place. So he had a very organized system of how to do it. And I'm also willing to bet that he also stalked the women before he kidnapped them and took them. I'm willing to bet you that he knew them prior to that. He more than likely had already contracted them, had sex with them in some of the cases. Some of these girls were not sex workers. Uh, and he knew who they were, so they were comfortable with him to get in the car with them. Once he got in the car, once he, he uh, had made up his mind to initiate his particular uh, narrative for that girl, he started to kidnap him. So I'm seeing something interesting after he was swiftly convicted. I've never heard of this. He entered a plea, and which I think basically, you know, meant that he he would just admit to it and they could move forward. And part of his plea was he was able to serve his time in a federal prison and there would not be any press coverage. So that's confusing because all these crimes took place in Alaska. I, I don't know how you negotiate the federal prison aspect, which was in Pennsylvania, nowhere near Alaska. And how, how do you tell the press not to cover something? That, that's like a, a First Amendment issue. Well, see, and I have some I have some thoughts about this, and I think it's very important. Uh, it will shock the true crime genre of uh, of this kind of stuff in podcasts and movies and true crime. But I really think that serial killers, the ones that get caught, the one the majority of them like the press. They like there's a few don't. This guy didn't. Randy Kraft doesn't. But there's a, a lot of them that do. They they like the, the camera on them. And, you know, they, they they become center stage. Ted Bundy comes to mind when it comes to this BTK, love the limelight. But if you, if there's some kind of a, 
maybe a, a, a bill passed for victims' rights and that when a serial killer is apprehended or one of these guys do these mass shootings or whatever, that the press immediately is a gag order. They can't mention who the guy is. They can't give him any press. There can be no interviews. There's nothing. They're basically just forgotten. They're wiped off the face of the earth, off the map of, the map of media. I believe that that will maybe in some ways um, people will be less likely to do these things. Um, but in a case like Hansen, of course, he didn't want to get caught. His victims were left in the wilderness. So it wasn't like he was really trying to find uh, you know, his own like limelight. He liked the privacy of looking at his trinkets in his own home. He liked the map in his, um, in his, um, in his headboard. Those are very personal things. This serial killer was extremely personal about everything. And I believe that this is a different type of killer. Uh, they're all, these are all serial killers, but they're subcategories. This guy is the same type of category as those guys that don't seek the, um, the limelight. They don't seek that. But how is that able to be negotiated? I mean, yeah, you might want that, but I don't understand how they were able to implement that. Well, I believe a judge can do that. And I, I'm not sure what the laws are in Alaska. If a federal judge, they sent him to federal penitentiary, there's a very good chance that a federal judge is involved. And it could be because he flew the people to a different part of Anchorage, Alaska. Maybe there's some kind of federal uh, guideline there. Maybe he crossed the line that he made it a federal case. There are a lot of different things can happen here. A federal judge has a lot of power. He can put a gag order and stop him at least handsome from having any communication. And he can instruct the prison that if anybody writes him, if anybody tries to interview with them, they would stop it immediately. Oh, they could do that. Believe me, they could do that. A federal judge could, and I believe, in my opinion, should do that. Yeah, they do that in a lot of other countries, by the way, you know, which, like socialist countries, that's a common thing. Uh, I see both sides of it. I'm, I'm probably more on the side of allowing information in general even with consequences but that has uh led to a, a lot of mass shootings and and at some point I, I might have to rethink it but i am generally um yeah I, i'm just very much against censorship in general we all know the arguments for and against it but i i totally see your point I'm only talking about these cases. We have a lot of victims that are women, children, uh, mass shootings where it's a bunch of children. The, the guy is getting off and the killer is getting off on the media. He, he likes it. He's the limelight. In those type of cases, I believe, yeah, I, I kind of see, I mean, look, I know the liberals are going to freaking go nuts on me on this one, but sometimes the overall uh, benefit of society is more important than individual freedoms. Like, oh, well, this guy has the, you know, the freedom to write whatever he wants. In some cases, this is a good case. Women, children have uh, mass shooting. That sometimes the overall benefit that society gets from shoving this guy in a deep hole and never referring to him again overrides individual freedoms. And I'm sorry, but that's just how I feel. And, and look, if you turn off the stage, you're not listening to me, but sometimes... When it comes to victims' rights, I think they override the right of a particular moron who's out there killing and hunting women and stuff. Well, not to mention there are already a plethora of restrictions. It's not like this is the one thing that the media couldn't hypothetically talk about. I mean, you can't even talk about September 11th, 2001 on TV unless you stick to a pre-approved narrative. So uh, that should be acknowledged. But perhaps that's a conversation for a different time. This guy died in prison. He was 75 years old, lived a lot longer than a lot of really good people. And that was the end of him. I don't know what happened to his bakery. Maybe it's still there. Ah, what a bastard. Well, Bill, I guess... Would you want to buy a donut for that bakery? Would you want to buy one from there? I haven't bought a donut in, like, 15 years. I, I feel like they're good, actually, but I just... I don't see the point of... I mean, what are you doing eating that for breakfast? What are you, insane? Are you a crazy person? You're going to eat fried cake for breakfast and you wonder why you don't feel good? Yeah, I don't know, but right now, if you offered me 
apple fritter, a maple bar, with a hot cup of coffee and maybe a milk? Hey, I'm going to have that for breakfast. Hey, I'd like to have a maple bar. Well, I would too, but we're guys and we are impulsive and, you know, we're enticed by these kind of things. But to some degree, you'd probably regret it. If you did that every day, you would uh, you would kill yourself. I mean, it would kill you. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Probably, but right now I would really like to have an apple fritter and a maple bar. Wow, I would really like to have one. If anybody's got one, please send me one. <laughs> Can we get uh, Bill a maple right, bar? Well, yeah, someone please give me a maple bar. But okay, well, that is the case of Robert Christian Hansen. Uh, good riddance, right? I mean, wow. Yeah. Amy Herman with a gun. Yeah. Well, he's got two kids out there. You know, someone asks you, like, what did your parents do? And they change the subject. Um, yeah, that's the question. So we will... One, two, three. Bill, will be back next time with another story. I appreciate your insight, as always, as do the listeners. So until then, I've been Matt Ralston. Your life is good. We'll see you next time.